This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Wildwood Flowers, stories of women who built country music. I'm Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. She used to tie her hair up in ribbons and bows, sign her letters with X's and O's, got a picture of her mama in heels and pearls. She's trying to make it in her daddy's world, an American girl, an American girl. That's Trisha Yearwood's number one hit from 1994, X's and O's, an American girl. The song has the distinction of being the first number one country hit written, in this case co-written, by an African-American woman. Alice Randall, who writes songs, books, essays, and who teaches on music and the black experience in America, wrote a beautiful essay in which she connects her groundbreaking story to that of the subject of today's Wildwood Flower, Lil Hardin Armstrong, who played piano on exactly one country album, Jimmy Rogers' Blue Yodel No. 9. Does playing piano on one country record entitle a person to be included in a podcast on country music? When you write as convincingly as Alice Randall does about her greatest musical influence, and how that influence directly led to Randall's achievement of being the first black woman to write a number one country song, yes, I'd say that Lil Hardin Armstrong was one of the women who built country music. As you listen, you'll find that her influence is much farther reaching than just country. Just to get it out of the way, we'll mention at the top here that she gets the Armstrong in her name from her famous husband, Louis Armstrong. And I think to myself, what a wonderful In an interview, Alice Randall says this, Lil Hardin Armstrong is one of my favorite songwriters. She played on Blue Yodel Number no. 9 with Jimmy Rogers, and she had a number one hit after her death, when Ringo, Ringo Starr, recorded a version of her Brown Gal, titled Bad Boy. The year I was born, Ray Charles had a hit with her just for a thrill. Yes, Lil took things from the black aesthetic into the world of country, and things from the world of country back into Armstrong's band. I like to say country is an Afro-Celtic genre. At its height, that Afro-Celtic hybrid gave us early rock and roll. The word underappreciated gets used in reference to Lil. When an artist is underappreciated, that usually correlates with the lack of available biographical evidence or contested facts, especially when that artist is overshadowed by a much more famous artist. All of this is true for Lil's story. My understanding is that there have been two attempts at biographies of Lil Hardin. One which Lil co-wrote with a later-life friend and producer Chris Albertson. This biography would be, I would assume, quite authoritative. This was never published, with Lil abandoning the project toward the end of her life because she felt it was too revealing about her time with Louis Armstrong. Albertson has a blog that contains some posts on Hardin, which have been helpful in aligning facts and dismissing information from other sources, but I do not have access to anything beyond Albertson's word that he was a close friend to Lil and that this collaboration was as he says it is. A second biography, Just for a Thrill, by James L. Dickerson, was published in 2002 and is fine in giving biographical details and some context for life in the cities in which Lil lived, Memphis, Chicago, and New York. I found it helpful in understanding Lil's life and times. Chris Albertson was not so generous of the book. There's a book titled Just for a Thrill that purports to be a biography of Lil, but it's not worth the paper it is printed on. The author, James Dickerson, did an appalling job of research, shallow and rife with misinformation that is compounded by his peripheral knowledge of jazz and its history. When he approached me in his search for material, I quickly concluded that his prime objective was not to document Lil, but to throw together yet another book. Assembly line authors have always bothered me, so I decided not to become his accomplice. The several biographies of Louis Armstrong I use for this episode at times contradict each other, some villainizing Lil in what seems to be an effort to deify Louis, a pattern I've seen in other music biographies that I'll talk about in future episodes. Here's looking at you, all you Hank Williams biographers. 
to deeming Lil's contribution to American music as nothing more than a footnote, or to giving Lil significant credit in the birth of jazz and the career of Louis Armstrong. No matter what I'd read for this episode, even the only book-length biography of Lil in existence, Louis's life and career dominate the narrative. In this episode of the podcast, we'll talk about Louis, of course. You cannot give an accurate sketch of Lil's life without talking about her complicated relationship with Louis. But I don't want Louis to take up all the space. I want to tell Lil's story as best as I can understand it, and how she can be seen as a source for inspiration for future generations of country musicians and writers, writers like Alice Randall. So this episode will be structured a little bit differently. I'm going to take a thematic approach to Lil Hardin's story, focusing on through lines of her life that help me understand who Lil is and how she contributed to music. The first through line is going to be Lil's relationship with her mother and grandmother, specifically how Lil's musical abilities flourished because of her mother and grandmother, and how her musical curiosity and adventurousness grew despite their active resistance to anything beyond sacred or classical music. Lillian Beatrice Hardin was born in Memphis in 1898 into a household that contained her mother, Dempsey, her father, William, Uncle Abraham, a boarder named Stuart, Lil's grandmother, Priscilla, and two of Priscilla's children, Mandy, age 27, and John, age 4. Lil's grandmother, Priscilla, was born into slavery and was legally freed at the age of 11. As of 1900, when a census was taken of the Hardin household, Dempsey, Lil's mother, was the only one of the bunch who could read or write. Lil's father leaves sometime before 1902, and Dempsey and Lil move into a boarding house at 196 Broadway, just a few blocks away from Beale Street. Dempsey saw Beale Street, with its nightlife and blues, as a den of iniquity, and tried to keep Lil free of its temptations by any means necessary. Dempsey loved music, but saw the blues and jazz as the devil's music, encouraging Lil to appreciate and play sacred music instead. At age six, Dempsey enrolled Lil in organ lessons, since there was an organ in the lobby of their boarding house. Lil learns the piano as well, and begins playing for church. Once, while playing a favorite hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, Lil improvised a little bit, putting a bluesy flourish on the notes, and, as a consequence, receiving a disapproving side-eye from the pastor. In another instance, Lil and her cousin were on the back porch, her cousin playing the blues on guitar, and her grandmother Priscilla ran out to make them stop playing such vulgar music. As Lil grew older, Dempsey, her mother, became more worried that she would be corrupted by the vices of Beale Street. Lil was high-spirited and passionate about music. In Dempsey's mind, this was a direct route to prostitution. Dempsey, despite being poor, saved all she could to send Lil to a program for high schoolers run by Fisk University in Nashville. It was part of Fisk's mission to provide sons and daughters of former slaves with a strong spiritual and academic education. Dempsey somehow paid the $36.50 cost of enrollment, and Lil spent the 1915-1916 academic year in Nashville. Fisk was strict. Lil had to wear a highly specified uniform. The school also forbade, quote, profanity, betting, and gambling, the use of ardent spirits as a beverage, and the use of tobacco, also dancing between the sexes in the university or in public places. Promiscuous dancing and card playing during the school year are strongly disapproved of." An additional rule, this one was unwritten, that men and women always had to walk on opposite sides of the street and avoid any eye contact. Strict though it might be, Fisk also became nationally known for, and well-funded through, the Fisk Jubilee Singers. As a high schooler, Liz was not eligible to join the singers, but there were plenty of opportunities for Lil to improve her piano training enrolling in a program of study that allowed her to master classical techniques. Lil returns to Memphis after the year in Nashville and starts buying sheet music with Dempsey's approval, 
up until the point when Lil brought home the music for W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues. Dempsey found the sheet music and beat Lil with a broomstick, according to one account. Adamantly opposed to the blues and jazz, and the sure way of corruption this type of music provided. It may be that this sheet music incident was the last straw when it comes to Memphis. The vices were too close. Dempsey and Lil catch the train they call the City of New Orleans and move to Chicago, which they found to be much less debauched than the city they left behind. Lil was 19 when they arrived. One summer day, Lil finds a music store and walks in, hoping to buy some sheet music. The store is owned and managed by Mrs. Jenny Jones, who also booked entertainers and musicians. One summer in Chicago, I went out to buy a sheet of music and I passed this music store on State Street. So I went in and asked for a number and... They had it all right, and they had a fellow there named Frank who was supposed to demonstrate the music. So he played it over for me, and he played it too well. So I said, do you mind if I try it? So he said, no. So I sat down and played it, and he said, ooh, you can play good. He said, you want a job? I said, hmm, I don't know, because I knew my mother wouldn't be too keen on me taking a job. So he said, Oh, well, do you go to school? I said, yes. And he said, well, you can play here in the afternoon. You get a chance to learn all the music. I said, mm. So I said, well, I'll go home and ask my mother. So I just went home and messed around a little bit. And three o'clock, I came back. And when I walked in, the lady said, oh, Frank, she's nothing but a child. And he said, oh, it doesn't really matter. She can play. So she said, he said, honey, you want to play over some music for me? So she brought down several sheets of music, and I played them over for her. She said, oh, yeah, she plays real well. She said, well, honey, if you want to work, I'll give you $3 a week. I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll go home and ask my mother. So I went home. I said, I got a job playing at the music store for $3 a week. My mother said, what? $3 a week? I said, oh, don't worry about the money. I said, I just want to learn all the music. She said, oh, oh that's all right. Lil did learn all the music in the store, and quickly at that. Lil asked Jenny Jones, who as you remember also booked talent, to help her become a part of a band. Lil did not tell her mother about this ambition. Her mother thought she was saving money to return to Fisk. There wasn't a lot of need for pianists and bands at this time. Pianos were expensive, and you couldn't travel with one, meaning that they didn't fit into many jazz ensembles at the time. The piano was great for church, but not for clubs. If Jones could find a band wanting a piano player, they would also have to accept a women pianist, something that was non-existent in any band at the time. Lawrence Duhay and his New Orleans Creole jazz band came into the store, wanting Jones to help book them. She found a spot for them at a Westside Chinese restaurant. As they were setting up for the gig, they decided they wanted a piano player. Jones sent over several male players, but none of them could fit the New Orleans style the band needed. Jones, as a last resort, sent Lil over to audition for the band. Her improvisational ability served her well, and she got the gig, being offered $22.50 a week. I asked them, I sat down at the piano, I asked them, Well, what key, what number are you playing, and what key is it in? Is it key? We don't know what key, just when you hear two knocks, start playing. <laughs> so, the clarinet player say, boom, boom. So I just hit everything on the piano, so whatever key that was in, I would be in it too. And oh, after, after a second, I could feel what they were playing, because at that time, I don't think they used over four or five chords. In fact, I'm sure they didn't. So I played that night, and they said, well, we're going to keep this little girl with us. And they asked me how old I was, and I told them how old I was, and they said, oh, they'll put us under the jail. <laughs> because, you know, minors weren't supposed to work in cabarets. Anyway, I stayed with the New Orleans Creole Jazz Band. And I was with them for three months before my mother knew. She didn't tell her mother, but one night, one of Dempsey's friends saw her playing and told on her. 
Lil lied and said the performance wasn't that she was part of a band, it was just an exhibition. On thin ice, Lil continued behind her mother's back, until a second friend ratted her out as well. Dempsey was enraged. Lil pleaded with her. Lil made the case that she had no prospects in life other than music. In Dempsey's mind, on one hand was the constant debauchery and danger of the nightclub scene. This was the era of Al Capone and other gangsters controlling many of the nightclubs in Chicago. On the other hand was her daughter, a poor black girl, granddaughter of a formerly enslaved person, trying to succeed beyond what was available to previous generations. They struck a deal. Lil could play, but Dempsey would drop her off and pick her up from every gig and practice. We worked from uh, 9 to 1. And from 9 to about 10 minutes to 1, I was the hot Miss Lil, you know. 10 minutes to 1, my mother would be standing at the door, you know, and I'd be so... I said, why don't you wait downstairs? Because I didn't want the people to know that, you know, that she had to come after me after me being so hot all night. Even with the chaperoning, the band took off. Lil gave herself a nickname, Hot Miss Lil, and the only mixed-gender band in Chicago was able to steadily draw a crowd. After several months, Lil convinces her mom to stop coming to the clubs to pick her up. Other members of the Creole jazz band were much older than Lil, and gentlemanly, and Dempsey agreed to not come to the clubs if the band's drummer, Tubby Hall, would make sure Lil got home on time each night. This was not a problem for Tubby, and of course Dempsey would still wait up at home until Lil got in. Though Lil's mother Dempsey adamantly, sometimes violently, opposed Lil's choice of music, Dempsey did support her pursuits, both financially and what appears to be well-meaning acts of concern for her safety. Let's move on to the second through line here. The next theme we'll talk about with Lil are what I'll call moments of clarity in her life. These are times when she made realizations about herself that changed her musical career. The first one happened when she was 16 and was a piano student in Mrs. Hicks School of Music. At the end of the year, it was a tradition for the top two students to give a kind of recital competition at commencement to determine the winner of the best student of the year. Lil was capably performing her sight-reading piece until near the end she lost her place. Lil improvised the rest of the performance and won, attributing her victory to her ability to create something new and beautiful out of a misstep. From this day forward, she would believe that there was something to set her apart from other musicians. She would also begin to trust her improvisational ability. The second moment of clarity happens after Lil and her mother move to Chicago, and Lil is working at the Sheet Music Store. One day, legendary ragtime pianist Jelly Roll Morton came into the store. Lil didn't know who he was at the time, but he asked if he could play a while. Morton, in 1915, would publish the first jazz sheet music. Lil would later recall hearing and seeing Jelly Roll play that day. She says, I don't know what he played, what pieces they were, but they were loud, and the place was rocking, and the people were jumping up, keeping up with him, and I was jumping higher than anybody. Lil was impressed with the volume of his playing, the aggressiveness with which he pounded and stomped as he played. By the time Jelly Roll was done, the store had gathered quite a crowd. Someone yelled for Jelly Roll to listen to Lil play. The crowd insisted, so Lil sat down to play what she could. Not jazz, she played some classical numbers, and Jelly Roll gave her polite approval and left. Just like the time she beat that other student through improvising her way through the commencement recital, Lil now has a new way of approaching music, one that would become a signature style for the rest of her career. Lil began to imitate Jelly Roll's body language and his volume. She said, boy, I only weighed around 85 pounds, and from then on, you could hear all 85 of them. Lil's self-confidence and reputation grew from there. So Lil learns the benefit of improvising at her commencement piano recital, and she acquires her vigorous playing style from Jelly Roll Morton at the Sheet Music Store. The last moment of clarity concerns the business side of music, more specifically, how to make money and gain respect as a woman in a male-dominated field. 
In Chicago, Lil became the house pianist for a club called Dreamland while she was in between stints working with King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. Yes, this is basically the same Creole jazz band as earlier in the story, but King Oliver took over and maneuvered Lawrence Duhay out of his own band. Also at Dreamland was Alberta Hunter, a famed jazz blues artist and increasingly close friend of Lil's. Alberta provided Lil a model for how to challenge social convention and how to succeed financially in the Chicago music landscape. Alberta was a lesbian, a savvy business person, a style icon, and a writer of edgy song lyrics. Edgy at the time. Lord, get away from my window. Ooh, hop knocking on my door. Cause I got myself some pig meat and I don't want you no more. Nice and young. Lil was unapologetic in her goal to make as much money as she could through her music. And Lil absorbed as much as she could from Alberta and how she conducted herself. At this time, Lil was making about $100 per week. Alberta was making between five and $600 per night. I can see this business-minded approach to music coming into play in Lil's partnership, both musical and romantic, with Louis Armstrong. Let's go ahead and talk a little about Louis here. King Oliver's Creole jazz band, of which Lil is a part, gets a gig in San Francisco. This would be Lil's first out-of-state gig, and the first time leaving her mother since her time at Fisk. This might have been an exciting prospect, but the time in San Francisco left a lot to be desired. They were not welcomed by San Francisco's music scene, and they faced questions about calling themselves Creole when they weren't, and they were subject to racist crowds. Lil left the tour early to return home to Chicago. In doing so, she left the band, returning to her old job at Dreamland. Oliver's band returns to Chicago, and a few months later wants Lil back in the band, though it's not the same band exactly. There's a new member, someone that King Oliver knew back in New Orleans, someone that, in fact, worshipped King Oliver, a shy cornet player named Louis Armstrong. Oliver took Louis along with him to try to get Lil back in the band. At first sight, Louis was love-struck. This was not the case with Lil. She says, I wasn't impressed at all. I was very disappointed. I didn't like anything about him. I didn't like the way he dressed. I didn't like the way he talked. I didn't like him. I was very disgusted. This is Lil's telling of the story. Louis tells it a different way, saying that he only became interested in her after he found out she was interested in him. Lil was married to a singer named Jimmy Johnson at this time, though the marriage was in trouble. Louis was fresh from New Orleans and married to a woman named Daisy. Louis had had a rough life up until that point. His mother was a sex worker, and he never knew his father. Daisy, his wife, was a sex worker as well, still engaging in sex work while they were married. Louis had a complicated view of women and had low self-esteem, often deferring to powerful men in his orbit. In this case, King Oliver, who also played trumpet. Louis was the better player, but the thought of unseating his idol was unthinkable. Lil does rejoin the band, and she and Louis quickly become the main attraction. Lil's full physical playing style and Louis' astonishing talent drew bigger crowds than ever. Louis and Lil also begin to grow closer, she finding him less disgusting as they get to know each other. Louis' mother moves to town, and Lil helps Louis set up an apartment for her. One thing leads to another, and as they're making the bed, they have sex for the first time. This was 1922. Lil was 24, and Louis was 21. Two rising stars in what is now considered the top jazz band in the country. The first power couple in jazz history. They're now rubbing elbows with the upper crust of Chicago's black society. And, much to Lil's protesting, Louis is getting to know some of the city's notorious gangsters. You heard me talk a bit about Jeanette Records in episode 2 of this podcast on Lottie Kimbrough. Jeanette, out of Richmond, Indiana, wants King Oliver's Creole jazz band to cut some records. In 1923, while on tour in the Midwest, the band makes history in recording some of the first jazz records, recording nine tracks, including Dipper Mouth Blues. (laughs) ¶¶ 
The record is successful, and OK Records now wants in on the action. The band records several sides for them, and for Columbia, and for Paramount. As the records begin to circulate, the band's fame grew, and Louis Starr begins to rise. Lil, seeing Louis Starr potential, and with her eye on financial success, encourages him to improve his appearance, replacing his second-hand clothes with tailored suits, and enabling him to lose 50 pounds. She also encouraged him to move to the front of the bandstand when playing, and to be more assertive in general. These changes seemed to work to improve Louis' stature in the band and in the Chicago scene at large. The bandmates found out that King Oliver was cheating everyone out of their fair share of the earnings. Louis, in particular, was being underpaid, making half as much as Lil was making. Lil encouraged him to stand up to Oliver. Louis, of course, was hesitant, and it came to light as he and Lil were arguing that King Oliver was keeping all of Louis' money for him doling out spending money when Louis would ask for it. There's no telling how much money King Oliver was withholding. Lil took charge, becoming Louis' de facto manager. Louis got what money he could from Oliver, and their relationship took a downward turn, and the band limped along, with several members quitting over finances. Lil and Louis decide to get married. The problem, of course, was that they were both currently married to other people. Lil had a lawyer see to both divorces, and the two were married on February 5th, 1924. They bought a home at 421 East 44th Street, which still stands in Chicago today. Louis' mother, Marianne, lived with them until she became too homesick for New Orleans and returned home. Back in New Orleans, Marianne ran into Louis' ex, Daisy. It turns out that Daisy was never informed of Louis divorcing her, having never been served papers. Daisy was furious, and was notorious for carrying a razor in her stocking at all times. One night, when Lil and Louie were playing in Chicago, there was a disturbance at the door. Louie knew it was Daisy, and he stopped the show before anything terrible could happen. Both the immediate situation and the longer-term situation were diffused when Louie and Daisy agreed upon regular, satisfactory cash payments. Daisy decided to stay in Chicago to make sure the payments weren't lost in the mail. Louie, apparently behind Lil's back, started to spend a good deal of time with Daisy. One day, Lil gave Louie an ultimatum, not about his affair with Daisy. She said she couldn't stay married to a man who played second trumpet. I decided, I said to Louie, well now look, um, we married now. I said, I don't want you playing second trumpet, you got to play first. So he says, Play first? Where am I going to play first? I said, well, then you'll have to quit Joe and find your job playing first. Oh, well, he didn't like the idea at all. Boy, no. I said, well, now, just one thing or the other. I said, you can't be married to Joe and married to me, too. I said, now, if you're going to stay with me, you'll have to play first. So he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to give him a notice. So he gave Joe his notice. And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to stay. One of us got to be working. So... He gave him his notice, and Joe said to me, Louis gave me his notice in the night, said, you didn't give me yours. I said, no, no, I'm not quitting. So he said, why is Louis quitting? I said, you have to ask him, I don't know, I don't know why. Oh, such lies, huh? As Louis picked up other gigs around town, Lil and Louis saw less and less of each other. Louis started to rekindle some of his mob connections, frequenting less reputable clubs, possibly with Daisy in tow. Lil and Louie were invited to New York for Louie to join Fletcher Henderson's Black Swan Troubadours. Louie went first, and Lil followed a month later. While in Chicago, Lil and Louie were a power couple, both enjoying significant name recognition around town. In New York, however, Lil was a nobody. She did what she could to make her way, both for herself and for Louie, whose path was easier. In November 1924, Lil and Louie were asked to record with Alberta Hunter, which they did, recording several songs, including Everybody Loves My Baby. Thank you. 
Lil decides to return to Chicago after this, not making much headway in New York. Louis stays in New York. When Lil visits him in 1925, she sees that he's back in a similar situation that he was with King Oliver, letting others take the limelight while he played second trumpet. She hated for Louis to settle for less than he could achieve. She returned to Chicago, walked into Dreamland, and told them she was starting a new band with her husband Louis. She convinced Dreamland to put out a sign advertising Louis Armstrong, the world's greatest trumpet player. She puts together an eight-piece band called Lil's Dreamland Syncopators, and Louis would play first trumpet. She did all this without Louis's knowledge. In fact, Louis wants to stay in New York, though he's playing third trumpet in Fletcher's band. Louis is anxious about fame. He doesn't want it. He just wants to play his horn. On top of this, Louis is seeing another woman in New York. Lil finally gets him away, convincing him that he would be able to play more with the syncopators than he would in Fletcher's Black Swan Troubadours. Lil and Louis' marriage wasn't exactly an open marriage, but both Lil and Louis had affairs. As long as the affairs didn't disrupt their career trajectory as musicians or the love that the two had between them, they were tolerated by the other partner. This balance was disrupted when Louis started seeing a young fan named Alpha. Louis and Lil began spatting more than usual, Louis blaming it on Lil's fastidiousness and temper. Their musical partnership, however, was better than ever. In 1925, OK Records wants them to record. They put together a band and call themselves Louis Armstrong and the Hot Fives. Lil wrote a number of songs for the session, as would be her practice for the remainder of her career. A couple of these songs were My Heart, My Heart Will Always Lead Me Back to You and Yes, I'm in the Barrel. the highlights of the session was a Louis song, Gut Bucket Blues. to spend more time with Alpha, even meeting and winning over her mother. Louis is spending so many nights sleeping at Alpha's that he's practically living there, and it seems that there's a semi-official separation between Lil and Louis. The Hot Fives took another recording session with OK in 1926. Lil's song Your Next is featured. A standout of this session is Georgia Grind, in which Lil's vocals and banjo are forefronted. Also, this, also on this session, heebie-jeebies, which truly made Louis a star. The relationship troubles become too much for the couple. Louis leaves the band, and Lil reforms a new band and continues to play at Dreamland. Somehow they still record together, and Louis starts to get flack from other musicians, of course male because Lil's the only female jazz player around, who say that Louis is henpecked, and that Lil exerts too much influence over him. Louis would say, quote, I listened very careful when Lil told me to always play the lead, play second trumpet to no one. They don't come great enough and she proved it. Yes, sir, she proved that she was right. You're damned right she did. The guys who called me henpecked all the time, they were broke all the time, and I always had a pocket full of money. I had everything I wanted and the best. The Lil and Louis partnerships continued to produce turmoil, breakups, reconciliations, gigs, and brilliant recordings. We've seen many instances of Lil taking the reins of Louis' career, helping him achieve where he had no ambition, and putting her Alberta Hunter-earned business savvy to use. 
There's one instance that helps me see what a savvy thinker Lil was, even in a situation that threatens her musical passion. Louis didn't always listen to Lil, as evidenced by Louis taking apart ownership in a club that he and a few other musicians, a group he called the Hot Six, wanted to start. The men didn't really know what they were doing, and Louis paid for nearly everything. The club only lasted a few weeks before they closed the doors. Louis lost nearly all that he had in his investment, and was living only on Alpha's paychecks for her babysitting and maid work. Lil, on the other hand, was doing very well, having started a new band without Louis. Louis, desperate for money, records with his hot six, leaving Lil out of the band. Remorseful, I guess, he breaks the news to her, and, rather than show disappointment, Lil agrees with the decision, asking, however, that she be allowed to act as the manager to Louis and his bandmate Earl Hines. They agreed, and Lil finds herself on top of a fraught situation. I bet Alberta was proud. For the last theme, let's talk a little bit about Lil's contributions to music. Louis Armstrong is considered by most to be the first great improvising jazz soloist, forever changing the art form. We can say that if it were not for Lil pushing him to the front of the bandstand and conducting his career, he would not have emerged by himself out of King Oliver and Fletcher Henderson's shadow. Lil can be credited not for Louis's talent, but for a large part of his success. I don't think this is a controversial thing to say. A controversial thing to say would be that Louis developed his scatting ability through his rehearsing with Lil. This is from Dickerson's book. Here's how the argument goes. We know that Lil and Louis would work out new songs together sitting on the back steps of the house. Away from the piano and playing no other instrument, Lil would sing and imitate instruments to teach new songs to Louis. Louis would imitate the sounds Lil would make on his horn. Lil would scat and Louis would imitate. It's possible that this scatting translated into Louis's stage persona. There weren't many women playing jazz at the time Lil was playing jazz. Jazz itself was still being formed. There certainly weren't many women leading their own bands as Lil did. In her career, she leads at least two all-female bands, one of them the Harlem Harlequins. Concerning her place at the birth of jazz, Lil says, We had no idea at the beginning that jazz was going to be that important, that someday people would want to know how we started, what we did, and what records we made, and it's amusing to read in books people tell why we did this. I'm glad they know, because we didn't. Lil composed over 150 songs, many of them enduring classics, like Struttin' with Some Barbecue. Just for a thrill. Just for a thrill. You know that you did me wrong. Just for a thrill. You made my life just one sad song. But now you're free and you're having your fun. But to me, you're still the only one Just for a thrill You made my heart stand still We'll talk more about Just for a Thrill in a little bit. 
Lil was ambitious, but she never got comfortable with her music knowledge, always wanting to learn more. Despite being on top of her game in the eyes of the Chicago jazz scene, Lil was not content with her own musical aspirations, and she enrolls in the Chicago College of Music to further her education. As Lil continued her education through 1928, she not only managed the business side of Louis's career, she also taught him the theories she was learning in her degree. Louis was a willing student. Later, Lil also moved to New York to pursue another music degree, this time at the New York College of Music. After completing a graduate degree and now equipped to lead a larger, quote, more sophisticated type of orchestra, she returns to Chicago and begins leading a jazz swing orchestra. Since this is a country music podcast, we need to talk about Lil's playing on Jimmy Rogers' Blue Yodel No. 9. But first, a little context. In late 1929-1930, Louie is under new management and moves to Los Angeles to pursue opportunities out there. Though Lil and Louie are separated at this time, Lil puts her career on hold and follows Louie out there. With her knowledge of Louie's ability to control his own finances, she half expects to find him on Skid Row. When she gets there, she sees he's doing quite well, actually, with many prospects, one of which being the house band at the Cotton Club, a gig that Louie arranged all by himself. Lil did try to rekindle the relationship with Louie, but he was not that interested. On top of that, Alpha moved out there when she heard that Lil was in California. It is while in California that Ralph Peer organizes the session for Blue Yodel No. 9 with Jimmy Rogers on July 16, 1930. The idea is that Peer, being an OK Records A&R man, had worked previously with Louie, Lil, and Jimmy. Here's a clip of that song. Again, this is Lil on piano, Louie on trumpet, backing Jimmy Rogers in this historic crossover between jazz and country. It was down in Memphis, corner of Beale and Maine. He says, big boy, you'll have to tell me your name. I said, you'll find my name on the tail of my shirt. I'm a Tennessee hustler. I don't have to wait. After Lil left, Louis was arrested for possession of marijuana when two detectives caught him and a bandmate smoking in the parking lot of the Cotton Club. Louis spent nine days in jail, and the case is dismissed when a man named Johnny Collins, obviously connected to gang activity, bribed the judge. The cost? Collins would become Louis's manager, and Collins immediately began to make a mess of things. Louis, despite having rejected Lil in California, comes running back. Lil is too depressed and is embarrassed by Louie's arrest, and she is now resigned to the end of their marriage and makes no true effort to reconcile. Lil continues to record with various configurations in the 1930s. In 1935, she signs with Decca Records and records and performs as Lil Hardin Armstrong and her swing orchestra. This is when she records just for a thrill. She also records the song Brown Gal, which can be seen as one of the earliest Black Pride songs. in 1938, Lil enters the 1940s in a deep depression. After the divorce, Lil becomes less interested in music. Louis, meanwhile, is becoming a movie star and known throughout the world. 
Lil enrolls in a sewing class sponsored by the WPA, deciding to try her hand at designing clothes, which she does. She also opens up a soul food restaurant in Chicago called Lil Armstrong Swing Shack, with foods like boogie woogie stew, rug cutters roast and dipsy doodle noodles, jam session pies, and tutti frutti inner tubes. The Lil and Louie connection could never really be severed. Several years after the divorce, Lil still wore his ring. Even the clothes she designed, she designed for Louis, and Louis would wear them on stage. Lil became Louis's private designer, still helping the career of the man she loved. Lil gets her own fashion show in New York, and it does well, but making her way as a black female clothes designer in 1940s America was an impossible task, and she gives up on that path. She also closes her restaurant and begins to teach French and piano. She still continued to make suits for Louis through the 1940s. In the 50s, there were plenty of European fans eager to hear the early jazz of Lil's era. Lil decides to return to music and tours and records in Europe, spending most of 1952 and 1953 in France and Poland. In 1961, Lil records her last album, Chicago, The Living Legends, with the songs Boogie Me, East Town Boogie, and Clip Joint. Broken hearted All because I started Fell in love with the handsome gigolo In 1965, Ray Charles records Lil's Just for a Thrill, appearing on his masterwork, The Genius of Ray Charles. Although you're free and having your fun, to me you're still the only one, cause you made my heart stand still. Well, it was just for a thrill. Lil gives a few interviews and a few performances in the late 60s and early 70s. Louie dies in 1971 after suffering from heart and kidney failure, but not before making a late career resurgence with songs like Hello Dolly and What a Wonderful World. At Louie's funeral, attended by hundreds and viewed on TV by millions, Lil tells a few people she isn't feeling well. Several weeks later, Lil was invited to perform at a memorial concert for Louis at Chicago's Civic Center Plaza. It was a cool August day. A Chicago Tribune jazz critic and friend, Harriet Choice, saw Lil sitting in the shade, awaiting her turn to go on stage. She asked Lil if she could interview her. We'll talk later, honey, replied Lil, and then shivered and said, I'm chilly. It's Lil's turn to perform, and she does with her usual gusto, playing an energetic rendition of W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues, the song that caused her mother to beat her as a teen for sneaking the sheet music into her room. She finishes her performance with vigor, and the last chords of the song ring out. Lil falls to the floor. Someone rushes to the stage and tries to revive her, but it's too late. Lil died at the age of 73, on stage, playing the music she loved at a tribute to the man she loved. Only a handful of people attended her funeral a few days later. There were no tributes or eulogies by her fellow musicians, no press. After she died, unknown people went through her house and took most of her artifacts and writings from over the years. 
These have never been recovered and have never surfaced. I don't know if Lil, much more than a footnote in American music history or the career of Louis Armstrong, will ever get her due or if we'll ever get her story straight. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower. This episode concludes season one, and I'd like to thank a few people. First of all, the listeners. It means a lot to me that there are people out there enjoying these stories. From what I can tell, most of the podcast listeners are in the U.S., but we do have several listeners across the world. Thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank my wife Amy for sharing in and supporting my interest in the lives of these women and for giving me insightful feedback along the way. Thanks to Mama Molasses, Dan Klaus, Julia Reeves, and Matt Stutzman, who contributed covers to the Sarah Carter and Mabel Carter episodes. Beautiful work. Thank you. Artists, it's not too late to send covers my way of any of the Season 1 artists. I hope we can have an all-covers episode of Wildwood Flower when we get enough submissions. Finally, thanks to the good folks at Area Code Network for welcoming me into their community. Listeners, if you haven't already, check out the other podcasts in the Area Code family. Links are in the show description. I'm working on Season 2 and taking about a month break to get the season ready. Stay tuned to the Wildwood Flower Instagram for updates and teasers. In the meantime, share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, and if you feel inclined to support me and my work, to help me buy books and pay for fees associated with tech stuff, please consider doing so. A link is in the show description for that as well. Thank you for listening. See you at Season 2.